You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Well, hey guys, good to see you today. Uh, last couple of weeks, we've had some great teaching. I am glad to be back with you today. If you've got your Bibles, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to talk a little bit about marriage today. Anybody excited about some encouragement about marriage? Anybody at all? Okay, good. I'll continue. Uh, if not, I can go. Um, but today, I, I wanted to start with a story. I remember it like it was yesterday. My wife and I, we had been married for eight days. We had spent a week in a Caribbean island. It was uh, total joy and bliss. We came back young, dumb, and broke, but we were happily married, and we were in love, and we were packing up all of our stuff because we were moving to Louisville, Kentucky. I was going to start seminary, and she was starting a new teaching job, and uh, we were watching TV, and she fell asleep watching TV. And so after some time, I figured, you know what, I'm going to perform this incredible, you know, act of service for my beautiful young bride. I'm going to scoop her up into my strapping arms, and I am going to carry her to bed. Well, she will sleep blissfully through the night and wake up in the morning to realize that she indeed has married the man of her dreams. And, and so I bent over, and I started to pick her up, and immediately it startled her. And she looked at me with these crazy fire eyes, and because she was still in this groggy state, she didn't recognize that this handsome young man was her husband. And she jumps up, chokes me with both hands, and proceeded to try to kill me for a few seconds. <laughs> I'm kid you not, until she finally woke up and she was like, whoa, whoa, what am I doing? And uh, I peed myself a little bit and then... <laughs> I was like, what have I done? I have married a psychotic woman. <laughs> uh, no, in fact, you know, she just kind of had a deep sleep and a weird dream, I guess. She hasn't done it since, but that was kind of like the beginning of a, a, a journey in marriage that kind of feels like that from time to time, to be honest with you. Like, like just when you think you get to know the other person, like, there's a curveball in your relationship, or just when you think you've grown and matured, there's a curveball that kind of sets you back, and marriage is just difficult. I mean, there are so many challenging things when it comes to marriage and when it comes to this relationship, and I'm sure the men in the room could tell a lot of stories about how your wife is crazy, and <laughs> you could share those with me, and honestly, the wife could probably tell a lot more stories of how we as men are crazy, but at the end of the day, every single marriage in this room has issues. Every single one of us has a certain amount of problems and a certain amount of issues that we're, we're dealing with, and, and hopefully you're trying to work through them. I, I married my wife almost 20 years ago, and it was the greatest decision of my life. We have you know, had issues, we've had problems, we've sought counsel, we've prayed, we've, we've been challenged. It has been the greatest experience of my entire life. I celebrated her birthday with our family this past weekend and, and uh, truly is an amazing, amazing marriage. But that doesn't mean that there aren't issues and, and every single one of you have issues as well. In fact, you might be saying today that there's actually a war in your marriage right now. There's a war at home, and, and uh, you feel like you're in a battle. You feel like you are in a, a, an immense struggle. And, and so uh, today I want us to realize that this battle, this war that we're in, isn't a battle of flesh and blood. It's not a battle against your spouse. 
In fact, we're in this series that we're calling This Means War, and we've been working our way through a letter that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote the church that it was in a city called Ephesus. That's why we get the name Ephesians. And so he's writing this letter to them, and, and he's challenging them and, and, and showing them that, that the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy everything that God wants to do in your life. And he says in chapter 6, verse 12, we'll dive into it specifically next week, that our battle, though, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against our spouse. It's not against a government that would seek to redefine what marriage actually is. Our fight goes much deeper than that. It's against our own evil sin, our own earthly, fleshly desires. And for us today, I want us to get the focus off of this battle that you're in against your wife and really begin to see, okay, this is an internal battle that I need to fight against my own pride, my own sin, my own selfishness. And this is what I believe the scripture would call us to today. I want to talk specifically about what the biblical roles for a wife really are. What are the biblical roles for a husband? And we want to unpack these, and yeah, it's going to be controversial, and I don't run to controversial passages in the scripture to be controversial. We look at it because God speaks to it. We, we look at these passages because the Bible clearly teaches that there are roles. There is a difference between a man and a woman. Those roles are unique. Those roles are important for us to understand. The Bible also tells us why there are roles, why they are even there. And, and then the Bible actually tells us what those roles are. So we need to understand them. We need to embrace them. And yeah, our culture is totally going to go against what the scripture teaches, but as followers of Christ, our mind is not dictated, our, our stance is not dictated by what culture says. It's driven by what the Word of God says. But before we actually read it, I want to say a word to all the single folks in the room. If you're single today, what I hope you begin to see is what you need to start looking for in a potential spouse. You can't know what qualities you need to look for if you don't know what, the, what, what God's design for marriage actually is. And so we want to look at that so that you might begin to see who this potential person is based on what those qualities are. Before the 20th century, you know, marriage was simply functional. You know, a guy wanted to marry a woman who was wealthy and had good birthing hips, right? I mean, it's essentially what, what, what marriage was all about. Today in, in our culture, marriage is about romance, Let's find the, the man or the woman of our dreams who's going to meet all of our needs and we're going to live happily ever after with. And what the Bible says, though, and even in this passage, is that neither one of those is the correct purpose of marriage. The real purpose of marriage is to make us more like Jesus. So I don't want the single people in the room to leave today thinking, I got to get married, I got to get married, I'm looking for the right guy, I've got to find a boyfriend, I got to find a girlfriend. Because that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal for you is not to get married and, and it's not necessarily to have kids, although that's a right and good godly thing to do. But that's not ultimate. That's not the goal. The goal is to be like Jesus. And whether you are single or married, God is going to use different ways to get you to that point. He's going to use marriage to get you to become more like Jesus. Or if you're single, he's going to use your singleness to get you to become more like Jesus because that is the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is more like Jesus and to be connected deeper with the people of God, his church in eternity. That's our future. That's our goal. Union with Christ, 
union with the people of God. And so as we think about this, we want to have that in mind. Whether we're in a family, whether we're married or not, we want to keep our focus on the real, true goal. Now, what I'm going to share today is the combination of a, several books that I've read. Specifically, Tim Keller had some lectures on gender that I thought were super helpful. And a book called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood that I've used for a long time that have uh, really helped me form and understand what the Scripture teaches on this. And so with that, let's dive into chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, where it says this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, let me start here with verse 32, where it says that this is a mystery. And if you were married today, I'm sure that you would affirm that marriage is a mystery. Amen? Like, wow. It's like a huge puzzle that we're trying to figure out. And, and, and we're trying to solve this puzzle, and we don't really know how to. We're not really equipped to. And, and that's certainly the case in marriage, but that's not really what Paul is saying about this mystery. He's, he's not saying that as, at all because it's something much deeper and much bigger Verse 32 teaches us something extremely profound that we've got to start with. Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, and by doing so, he's taking us back to the very beginning of creation, where God created the world, man and woman, and he created also the institution of holy matrimony. We call it marriage. And so what Paul is telling us is at the beginning of creation— God is creating this picture, this analogy of what the coming Messiah, Jesus, is actually going to do for his people, his church. And so it's an image, it's an illustration that he's setting forth even before time begins. And this is unique, and it tells us something extremely profound. It's not like Paul says, hey, what Jesus did is kind of like marriage. That's kind of a good illustration. No, God in the very beginning creates marriage, and then he shows us how this marriage is actually lived out and what Jesus actually does for us, and he gives us this picture of what Christ does for his church, and he relates it to our marriage. So what this teaches us is that this is extremely, extremely foundational to who we are as human beings. First of all, in Genesis 2, it teaches us that there are two genders, male and female, not a combination of the two. Our culture is confusing this, which means that kids growing up in this confusion um, 
getting more confused. And so we shouldn't be surprised that kids are, are getting more and more confused because our culture is doing more and more to confuse them. But the scripture teaches, beginning of creation, creation, male and female, he's creating marriage. And so God is the one who is in charge. It's his idea. He originated the idea. So it doesn't matter what our government or the state says marriage is or is not. You know, marriage is not a secular uh, device. Marriage is a Christian institution. And so he explains what it is and shows us that there are roles. And so that really is foundational to who we are as men and women and as husband and wife. And we need to understand this. The, the mystery that he speaks to is that in the old covenant, they didn't know Jesus. He hadn't come yet. So it was a mystery, this whole, this whole idea of husband and wife and how it relates to God and, 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 and the people of God. But, but now that Jesus comes, Paul says, it's not a mystery anymore. We've solved this mystery. Jesus came. So he's fulfilling this. And now the, the church is called the bride of Christ. And he sanctifies and he saves and he redeems and, and he leads. And, and he says, this is the, the marriage is kind of a picture of what Jesus did for us. And so it says in verse 21 that we are called to submit to one another. We're called to submit to one another. He just finished a section telling what it means to be an imitator of God, to follow God's will. And now he says, I, I want you to submit to one another. Now that means that, you know, people in this section are called to submit to people in this section. I'm called to submit to you in ways. You're called to submit to me in ways. We're all called to submit to each other. So what he's teaching us is that as a follower of Christ, there is this idea and concept of mutual submission. Now, the word submit just simply means that you are going to voluntarily yield in love to one another. So I'm voluntarily going to yield myself in love to someone else and what, to what someone else desires or wants or, or, or needs in their life. And so we see this all throughout Scripture. In Philippians 2, 3, we are told to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. This is submitting and valuing others higher than yourself. 1 Peter 5, 5, young men are told to be submissive to older men. In Hebrews 13, church members are told to submit to the pastor, faithful pastors. Romans 13 tells all of us to submit to the governing authorities. So what I'm trying to do here is show you that we're all called to mutually submit. And the idea of submission is not just given to a woman. It's given to all of us. And, and, and as followers of Christ, we are called to submit in areas. It doesn't mean that because we are told to submit to governing authorities, that we are inferior people. We're the lowly morons, and people in government are the smart people. I'll save my jokes for that. <laughs> Just because you as church members are called to submit to faithful pastors, that doesn't mean that pastors are superior and you're not as smart. Of course not. It's not what it means, Right? So we have to redefine our understanding of what submission is, first of all. Realize that we're called to mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. So as I submit to you and you submit to me in ways, we are both doing that in service and reverence and worship to Christ. But now he gives specific roles to men and women. And he kind of sums up this in verse 33. He says, let each one of you love his wife as himself, 
and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So let's start with the wife. Wife, respect your husband. So what he's telling us uh, that uh, a role in marriage is to be. So what does it mean for a wife to respect her husband? That's the number one need of a man is to be respected by his wife. And so he clearly says in verses 22 and 24 that she is to submit to her own husband. She's to submit to him. Now, women are not told to submit to men in general. A woman is told here to specifically submit, yield in love to the leadership of her own husband. All right, that's important. We want to understand that. We're all called to submit, mutually submit to one another, but Paul specifically applies that general principle here and says that a wife is called to submit to her own husband. But we have a lot of confusion about what that actually means and what it actually looks like and how you actually apply it to your life. And so let me, let me go now to a section here where we talk about what it's not, okay? And what submission in marriage is not, it doesn't mean that women are inferior. Just like you as a congregation submitting to the pastors doesn't mean you're inferior. Same could be applied in marriage. In fact, God himself is a picture of what submission really looks like when you think about it. Because we believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons and one God. And so each role in the Trinity is different. The Father sins. Jesus is the one who is sent, who lives on earth, dies on the cross, raises from the grave, accomplishing our salvation. That was his role. The Spirit of God didn't do that. Jesus did that. Jesus is not greater than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is equal to the Father, just like Jesus is equal to the Father. They are equal to each other. The Spirit's function and role is to convict us of sin, to empower us for Christian living, right? to save us, regenerate us. Different roles equal in essence and dignity in every way. And so we are in a marriage now, different roles equal in dignity and essence in all areas equal, and yet God shows us that there is a structure to, to, to understand. And there are roles for us to embrace. Secondly, it doesn't mean that husbands are to dominate their wife. In fact, we just read that husbands are told to lay down their life in a sacrificial love to provide and nourish and care for their wife. And so if you are dominating your wife, you are far from being a godly man. It does not mean that wives unconditionally follow their husband. If your husband is leading you to sin or leading you to do something illegal, you are not bound to follow his leadership into that area. If he is asking you to do something sexual that you are not on board with, you do not have to follow that leadership and may he not try to dominate in that area. You are not unconditionally following him. You follow him as he is submitted to the Lord and is humbled before God. It doesn't mean that husbands make independent decisions. As if a husband makes all the decisions and then just kind of informs his wife. That's not at all what submissive, uh, a submissive wife looks like. Only a fool would make a decision without talking to his wife about it. Only a fool would would. would would seek to move houses if his wife wasn't on board with it. Only a fool, if his wife didn't want to work, she wanted to stay at home, would make her feel humiliated because of that. Only a fool would do that. 
No, every decision we make in, in, in our marriage is 100% together. We communicate, we talk about these issues, we, we determine what steps are best, and we are equally engaging in that conversation. Now, what do you do when you can't come to an agreement when she wants A and you want B? Well, I'll talk about that later. <clears throat> Next, it doesn't mean that women should not have the highest leadership positions in the world. We have to remember that context is everything when we read the Bible. We don't just pull verses out to, to, to fit a narrative that we want to believe or teach. And so when he speaks to this, he's talking about in the church and in a family. So we don't apply this outside of the church and outside of the family. Women, yes, be CEOs, be leaders, be in government. Absolutely. I'm raising, I'm trying to raise three godly, confident, you know, strong, young Christian women. And, and, and so each and every woman in this room needs to seek to do the same. So it doesn't mean that women shouldn't work or can't have leadership roles in the office. Next, it doesn't mean that a husband has a right to demand submission. Now, this is, is not what it means. You can't go home today and say, see, hear that? No, that's ridiculous. Just like you wouldn't flip over to chapter 4, and I'm just looking here at chapter 4, verse uh, say 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. You don't go home and say, hey, see, no corrupting. You don't do that. You don't go home in verse 31, see, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. You got to do that. You don't, you don't do that in those areas. You certainly wouldn't do it in this area. No, a wife freely yields to the leadership of her husband. This is the decision that she makes with the Lord and in her own walk. You cannot demand that. Now, all the single ladies in the room, listen for a second. There is no distinction or category in the Bible for a boyfriend. So if a boyfriend is trying to get you to owe your submission to him, you say, put a ring on it, bro, and say, I do. Because you do not owe him that respect or that submissive heart until he does. All right? Verse 23. Look at verse 23 now. So wives are told to submit in verse 22 and verse 24. And in verse 23, it says, For the husband is the head of a wife. The head of the wife. Now, what does it mean to be the head? Well, Again, Paul helps us understand what this actually means. He's referring us back to Genesis chapter 2, the very beginning of creation. And when God creates day, he creates night, he says that it is good. Thank you. When God creates all the animals, he says that it is And then when he creates man, he says it is not good. It's not so hot. In chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. A helper suitable for him. So out of the rib of Adam, God creates Eve, and the two genders are established. Now, when we come to that word, it feels a little icky. I'll just be honest with you. The, the, the wife or the woman is a helper. This is, this is a, a, a hard 
English word for us right now because it kind of has a negative connotation or even a demeaning connotation. It's like, you know, as a dad, and if I'm putting furniture together or I'm putting something together and I need, you know, my kids to, to help me, I would call my, my son and, hey, be daddy's helper, right? And go get the screwdriver and go get the, the hammer. And, and, and so it gives us that kind of icky kind of feeling. But, but when you understand, you know, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and this, this Hebrew word for helper is the word azer. And it is a much more profound word than what our English word actually helps us to have an understanding and picture of. In fact, the Bible calls God our azer. He's our help in Psalm 33. Now, it certainly doesn't mean that God is daddy's little helper and he's going to come around and he's going to, you know, help you do something because he can't do it himself. In fact, it means the exact opposite. God has resources and the ability and the power that I do not have. And I need his help in every area of my life. So when it says that God is my help, it means that he has something that I don't have and that I need in order to be fulfilled and completed. And in the same way, when God is creating a woman and saying that now she is a help, what he is saying is the woman has resources that the man does not have. She has abilities and she has a role that the husband cannot fulfill. And so when she is coming into the picture of this marriage, she is completing him. And so now this gives us a much deeper and way more profound view of biblical womanhood. I need, I desperately need what my wife has because it is not good for me to be alone. When I think about this, another example would be if I'm going to help one of my kids with, with their homework. And so uh, maybe it's history homework because that's basically the only thing I can help them with anymore. But uh, it's like, hey, I can help you. How do I help them? Well, I come alongside as a helper when I submit my schedule to, to, to their needs. I submit my resources, my knowledge, my wisdom to what they need. And I take the time to teach them, to show them what they do not have because I have resources and abilities that they don't have. And so humbling myself under them, I show them. And now they are empowered to learn it and to do it on their own. This is a helpful picture for us to understand what it means for a wife to come alongside of a husband and lovingly yield what she wants and allow her husband to lead. A man is insufficient and a wife helps fill those gaps. So here's what we learn. Roles in marriage. Husband is the spiritual leader. He's called to lead and to sacrificially love his wife, to serve and to nourish and to care for her needs. And the wife is, 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 is called to submit to that leadership. Now, after that, what are we supposed to do? What are the specifics? How does God then unpack all of this? Well, you look at Ephesians 5, you go back to Genesis 2, you see headship, you see submission, you see how God created man and marriage and how it all works, but then it doesn't go into any details as to what it looks like. And that's intentional. Because the Bible looks different in every situation, in every relationship, based on your personality and your spiritual life. 
every single one of us are going to apply this in different ways. There should not be any stereotypical roles then. And that's what we have to combat in our minds as a church to a world that thinks that our understanding of men and women is archaic and taking us back to the cavemen. I find a lot of Christians who believe the things that I'm talking about. They believe the word of God. Women and men are different. Yes, women and, you know, for marriage, it should be a man and a woman in marriage. They say things that they affirm all this. And then they also say things like, yes, I believe or I affirm the traditional family values or traditional family roles. And to that, we've got to pump the brakes a little bit. Because what does that mean? Typically, it means that in our culture, a man goes to work and the wife stays at home. But that is not found in the Bible. Typically, people will mean that, well, it means the man takes care of the money and, you know, the woman cooks. And those are stereotypical roles that are not in the Bible. So what we learn here is that when we start applying this text to uh, life, we have to go outside the Bible to actually do that. But when you read the Bible, you go to things like Proverbs 31 that talks about this woman that should be praised, who has her own clothing line, who is investing, and she's dealing with shipping and receiving, and she's taking care of the kids, and she's dealing with dinner, and she's doing all these things. And God says she is rightly to be praised. And you think, well, the Bible affirms that work. The Bible affirms that mentality. And what happens is we start to buy into a traditional value of what we think family and marriage life is based on what our culture is saying. So even church people, followers of Christ, we pick up on what culture is saying. But if, if you think about it, the, the pre-industrialized world, that's, that was before the 1800s, so before the year 1800, marriage and family looked completely different than what it looked like today. Men weren't getting up and going to work. Men were doing everything with their wife. So if they were making shoes, they, they, they were cobblers, they were making shoes together. If they were tailors, they were making clothes together. If they were farming, they were farming together. Certainly different roles in how they accomplished that, but they were doing it together. They raised their children together. It wasn't until after the Industrialized Revolution that we start to see men getting up and going to the office and women staying home. So how stupid would it have been for God to say, this is what a woman does. She stays at home and the man goes to work. Of course it couldn't do that. Of course God would never be so, you know, low, would, would be so unintellectual to give us that type of stereotypical roles. No, the Bible is way more profound and it stretches all generations from the creation of the world until the time that Jesus comes back. The roles will not change. And they are so profound that we need to uphold those values in that what we see in the scripture, fight against stereotypical ideas and roles. And we come around this and so we go, okay, well, here we are in 2018. So what does it mean, Trent? What does it mean? Who cooks? I would say the one that does it the best. <laughs> Who cleans? I would say both of you. Who works? Well, the Bible says that the man is called to provide, so I would say most definitely he is. But should the woman, if she wants to? Who raises the kids? Who disciplines the kids? It better be both. 
The point is that in every relationship, you're going to have to figure out how this is practically lived out and how this is practically applied to your life. But inevitably, at some point in your marriage, there's going to be a disagreement that you just can't find the answer. She's going to want A. You want B. What do you do in that case? Let me preface this conversation by saying that in in almost 20 years of our marriage, I can only look at one area or one time when this was even an issue. I wanted A. Michael wanted wanted something completely different, and, 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 and I didn't immediately make any decisions. It took a lot of prayer and a lot of conversations until I got her until, to about 85% with me, and then she, she willingly submitted in that area. But, but I think what authority, what headship, what spiritual leadership looks like in the family, and this, uh, this was helpful when I was reading Tim Keller's um, words he essentially said that in the case of a tie like that, the scripture would give the man the tie-breaking authority. So that in that situation, that happens very rarely in marriage, if ever, but when it does, the tie-breaking authority would then go to the man. So where are we going to go to church? I want to go here. You want to go there? Where are we going to live? I want to live here. I want to live there. Where are kids going to go to school? I want to go here. You want to go there, Right? And so in that case, the scripture would say, give the man the tie-breaking authority. And in love, a wife would willingly submit to that decision. Now, we go to verse 33 and we see that the husband is called to love his wife. Husband is given this leadership of his family. He's told to exercise that leadership in love, in sacrificial love. So what does this look like? Let me give you... Uh, what loving leadership looks like in the Bible. First of all, it looks like provision. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, the man is given a job to cultivate and to subdue the earth. And so even before the wife uh, Eve was created, Adam had a job. Adam was able to provide for himself. Single ladies, can I have your attention for a minute? If, if homie cannot provide for himself, <laughs> he ain't going to provide for you either, right? If, if he's more concerned uh, uh, about playing Fortnite than he is getting a job and taking care of himself and then potentially being able to take care of a wife, red flags should be going up. If he's not a good student, red flags. He's not qualified. He's not ready. He's too immature, He's got to be able to provide for you. And I'm not just talking about financially. I'm talking about emotionally. Can he provide emotionally, financially? Can he give you that security? Listen, if you are in, if you're single and you're looking for someone to date, a lot of red flags need to go off if the guy can't hold down a job. If he's not a hard worker. I don't care what he looks like. If he's not a hard worker, if he can't get up on time, get to meetings on time, he's not ready. In fact, I would say this, and I know this is just my opinion. It's not in the Bible. It's my opinion. I would say that if you are not mature enough to get married, then you're not mature enough to date. Our culture tells teenagers to date as many people as you can and have as many sexual experiences as you can. 
so that you can figure out who you like. In fact, go live with them for a little while, and then you'll really be able to tell if you like them or, or don't like them. And in the process of accruing all of this sin and devastation and problems, and what you're doing is you're ruining your future marriage. You're making your future marriage even more difficult. You're, you're, you're not allowing the hand and blessing of God to be upon you because of the amount of sin that you're allowing in your life. And so if you're a teenager... And maybe your parents are like, date whoever you want, whatever. Here, here's my challenge for you. If you're not ready to get married, then there's no point in dating. Because dating leads to marriage. Hello? Right? So, so if I'm just dating a guy just because, but he's not really husband material, well, then you're just, you're just wasting your time. And I know what your friends are going to tell you, ladies. Why don't you have a boyfriend? You, 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 you come out with us. We could double date. You never have a boyfriend, whatever, whatever. And you're going to be the only one, kind of. And it's going to be lonely at times. But I promise you, in 20 years, you're going to be at the lake with the husband of your dreams while those ladies are in offices like mine weeping because of the mistakes that they've made in their life. And they're trying to figure out what's next. You follow God's plan today. You do what's right today and let everything else, God, God provides everything else. You trust his plan, right? So provision. Secondly, a husband is called to provide the spiritual leadership. So spiritual. When the woman was brought into the world in Genesis 2, God had already given to Adam the, that he should not eat from the forbidden tree. So it was his responsibility to tell her and to share with her how we relate to God. Here, here's how we relate to God. He said not to eat from this tree, but guess what? Adam didn't do a good job because Eve fell for it. She ate the fruit first. And what's interesting is that the fall and the sin of the world didn't, and the curse didn't happen until Adam sinned. So it was Adam's sin and it was his failure to lead his wife and his own failure to eat of the fruit that led to the curse in the first place. And so as a man, what we take from this and where we learn even in this passage is that we're called to lead our wife spiritually. Thirdly, we're, we're to lead in the area of romance. So he says here, he quotes Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, that for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and he, and, and he should cleave to his wife. So the man is to leave father and mother cleave to his wife. So, so this romance, this cleaving, this one flesh union, he's got to leave mom and dad's emotional support. He's got to leave mom and dad's opinion, and he's got to leave mom and dad's, uh, you know, all, that, all those things that they want. And he's got to cleave to his wife and, and, and seek to see what she wants and what she needs and what she desires. Now, I'm always going to listen to mom and dad, and that, that influence and that wisdom is great, but but there is that distinction of where you, you, you leave that emotional, financial, spiritual support and you cleave. And, and, and in this one flesh union, the man leads romantically. He, he's not just about his own physical needs, but he's leading in the area of romance. Come into my home where it is safe and where I will provide love. Fourthly, man is to provide protection. When God is saying leave and, and cleave, he's saying come into this family. And as Christ takes care of his body, the church, 
A husband is called to take care of his wife, just like he would care for his own body. Just like he loves his own body, he cares for his own body, he cares for his wife. The picture here, he relates it to Jesus and says, Jesus cares for his body. And who is his body? The church. We're the body of Christ. And so Jesus nourishes his body, cares for his body, protects his body in unity. And then fourthly, or fifthly, it's a self-sacrificing leadership. Self-sacrificing. So Paul says, model your leadership after Jesus, who sacrificially laid down his life for his bride, leveraged all of his power to serve, to protect, to exalt, and to bless his bride. So a husband gives all of himself, not just some of himself, all of himself. He gives all of his emotional, his, his emotions. He gives the, that physical presence, and he's not just off at work or down in the man cave. He's, he's with her. He gives all of himself to her physically, emotionally, spiritually. Are you giving that spiritual leadership to your wife? Are you supporting her emotionally as Christ sacrificially served his church? We are to model him. Again, he's nourishing the church, his body. He's feeding the church, his body. He's cherishing the church, his body. He's unifying the church, his body. And in the same way, as a husband, I'm, I'm called to nourish my wife, feed her spiritually, care for her. It means that I'm nurturing her. I'm looking after her needs. I'm looking after her spiritual life. I'm saying, honey, let's go to church. Honey, let's get into a small group. Honey, we got to serve. Honey, let's read the Bible together. Honey, let's pray together. Honey, let's read a, a, a book about marriage to get better at loving each other. He initiates this kind of leadership. The word cherish here in the Greek, New Testament is written in Greek. The word translated cherish literally means to keep her warm. I love that. To keep her warm, to cherish her, to keep her warm. Yeah, it's getting a little cold outside, and so maybe physically keep her warm, put your arm around her. But do you keep her warm emotionally? The warmth of that nurturing conversation and that loving conversation. I see too many husbands who are cold to their wife, just stone cold, don't care how she feels, don't care what she gets excited about, don't care what's going on in her life, just simply care about what they need when they need it. And that's such a far step away from what it means to be a godly man and a godly husband. Just imagine, imagine for a moment what your life would look like, what your marriage would look like in five years, men, if you decided today to learn and to grow in the area of sacrificially leading your wife. And you committed to read a book, you committed to get into a small group, do a study, read more about it, talk to a mentor or a coach in your life, a spiritual coach, and you said, you know what, I'm going to take steps towards this. Imagine what your life would look like. I am telling you, if you took those steps in one year, two years, five years from now, you would be a different man and you would have a different marriage because I have never met a godly woman who does not willingly yield in love to a man who loves Jesus and sacrificially loves her. I've never seen it. Never seen it. But I can tell you why you're having trouble today. You're having trouble in your marriage today, number one, because you're a sinner. 
and you take your sin into that relationship. And because of that sin, you don't want to submit to anyone, especially to God. You don't want to submit to him. You don't want to submit to his plan for your life. And secondly, the other reason is that you, you resist this kind of marriage is because you're selfish. So I get it because I'm a sinner and I'm selfish too. And, and the reality is, as I live in that selfishness, I, I begin to leverage the resources that God has given to me, the, the, the leadership that God has given to me, the talents that God has given to me. I leverage all of that stuff for my own personal gain instead of leveraging that power for my wife. And just imagine what it would look like, though, in your life and in your marriage if you began to leverage all of those resources for her, how to make her more loved and more cared for and more honored, totally different way. The reality is, for many of you, you're missing the most important relationship. And the most important relationship has the power to transform your personal life, and then it has the power to transform your marriage. And without this transforming relationship in your life, you will never understand how to be and to have a good marriage. And that is a relationship with Jesus. And recognizing that he died on the cross for your sins, and that when you confess your sin and you receive his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, by faith, he saves you. And that begins a journey of transformation and wholeness and health and life to the fullest. And some of you need to make that decision today. And I want to encourage you, before you go home, stop by the care and prayer room. We've got volunteers in there every single, every single week that want to care for you, talk with you, pray with you, encourage you. If there is any ever decision you need to make or want to make, stop by that room and tell them what's on your heart. Maybe your marriage is going through a rough, rough time and you would like them to pray over you today. Stop by the room. It's what they're here for. It's what they live for. They love being able to serve you in that way. Whatever it is, let's bow our heads now and ask God's blessing on the truths that we've heard today, that we may, we may apply it to our life and that it would change us. Father, these are some profound, profound truths today. And Lord, it takes us a while to wrap our mind around them and it takes us a while to wrap our heart around them. But I know that there are some single men in the room and some single ladies in the room that need to aspire to these five truths of what it means to be a man, man of God. There are some ladies in the room who might be dating a guy who, who doesn't have all five, who doesn't have three out of five, who doesn't have one out of five, and he is ruining her future. God, I pray that you would give her wisdom on making the decisions that you're calling her to today. There's some single guys in the room that, that need to grow up and need to mature into this. There's some married men in the room, God, that need to grow up. Maybe we get excited about having one out of the five, and so we're one-fifth a man, but God, we don't want to be one-fifth. We want to be a whole man serving you. Some of us have a long way to go, but that's okay because your spirit can transform us. And we're asking for that today, God. Transform lives, hearts. We're a church, Lord, where, where you've done miraculous things in marriages. You've, you've changed marriages. Marriages that were about to end a divorce, you've saved. Issues that have arisen in marriages, God, you've healed. 
We want to see more of that. God, I know that there are some people in this room who need that even right now. May today spark something within them that changes their attitude, God, changes their perspective. And from this point forward, they decide to be different. And we'll give you the credit. We'll give you the glory for it all. And everyone says, amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.